Let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. Let's listen now to God's Word. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be focusing our attention this morning upon verse 18 as really a a helpful entry point for this significant passage of Scripture. 
that uh, we'll be spending, God willing, a number of weeks considering. So this morning is more or less an introduction to Romans 1, verses 18 through 32. But verse 18 gives us something to ponder as we begin. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we're told that those ungodly, unrighteous men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now we've just got done considering Paul's summary of the good news of the Gospel that he has come to proclaim through this letter to the Christians in Rome. Paul had desired to come to them in person, in God's providence, that didn't happen, and thankfully it created the need to write this most important of Paul's epistles, arguably. Certainly among the most important books in the Bible. And in verses 16 and 17, Paul summarized for us the gospel that he was eager to preach in Rome, in the capital city of the world empire of that day. He said he was not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. He was not ashamed. In a culture that mocked Christians, the Gentiles, seeing the gospel as utter foolishness, this Jesus, this insurrectionist, crushed underfoot by Caesar, crucified on a Roman cross. Jesus is king. Nonsense, they said. The Jews, seeing in this crucified Messiah a stumbling block. For again, how could the Messiah be forsaken, be rejected, be nailed to the cross in agony? And surely He didn't rise from the dead. And so on. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed to proclaim this Gospel that gets such funny looks at best from the surrounding society in the Roman Empire. He says, I'm not ashamed because this Gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. We considered that good news of Christ's death, of His resurrection, of His perfect obedience, even unto the death of the cross, His victorious resurrection, saving all who believe in Christ. Not one person who's ever truly put their trust in Christ has ever been put to shame. It is the power of God unto salvation. Nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, Paul boasted in the cross of Jesus Christ because it established the righteousness of God. The righteousness that Habakkuk spoke about, we're not going to consider that because we preached eight sermons on that one text in our Habakkuk series, so you can go back and listen to that. But Habakkuk preached this gospel, this righteousness which is imputed to all who believe, such that every believer in Jesus Christ has their sins taken away and replaced with the perfect righteousness of Christ in the sight of a holy and just God. Now Paul at this point in verse 18 is moving on to explain why that's important. Why do we need righteousness? If you walk down the street with a sign that says the righteousness of God through faith in Christ... You know, you, you, can, you can believe on Christ and have this righteousness. Nobody's going to care. 
Many of us know because we've done that. And many, you know, apart from the grace of God, nobody's interested. Nobody cares about the righteousness of God. They don't care whether it's by faith or works. In our culture today, as in the Roman world, nobody really understands why they need righteousness. It's not good news because they don't understand the bad news that is presupposed in the good news. If I were to tell you, I've used this illustration before, but if I were to tell you at 2 a.m. tonight, at 2 a.m. in the wee hours of the morning, someone is going to climb up a ladder into your second-story bedroom and smash the window and grab hold of you and take you and put you in a truck and drive you away, you would be afraid of that. You certainly wouldn't appreciate it as good news unless you understood that your house was on fire and your life was in danger and that was a fireman who went in and rescued you and put you in an ambulance. So the the fact is, if we don't understand the bad news, we're not going to make any sense of the good news. So Paul moves on from the good news to say, hey, by the way, here's why you need that righteousness in the sight of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, before we dive into that, I want to ask you the question this morning. Why is this tail end of Romans 1 so important? Why is Romans 1, 18-32 so crucial, so valuable that we would spend an extended series of weeks on this text? And I'm mindful that this emphasis on the bad news really continues up to chapter 3, verse 20, because Paul brings the bad news for the Gentiles and the bad news for the Jews. But let's just take this first chunk at the end of Romans 1. Why is this so important that we would spend that much time? Why is it so valuable and crucial for this epistle? Why is it so valuable for the Christian faith? Why is it so valuable for the church today? Because, my friends, it is crucial and it is valuable for this epistle and for the Christian faith, and for the church today. Why? Well, let's seek to answer that question by considering, just by way of an introduction, a a basic summary of the significance of these verses. Let's first consider that these verses provide us with uh, evidence of the undeniable reality of God's wrath against sin. The undeniable reality of God's wrath against sin. Many people today, more than ever, even among professing Christians, whatever that means, deny the wrath of God. Or they minimize it. Or or if they believe in hell, essentially if you question them enough, you realize that in their view, hell is virtually empty. But that's not the picture that we get in this section of Scripture. When Paul is giving us the bad news, he gives us the bad news. And he doesn't candy coat it, and he doesn't flatter us or tickle our ears. He shows us the undeniable reality of God's wrath against sin. The word wrath here it means that God is fuming. He is indignant. He is angry. He is opposed. He plans. He, he is resolute in His immutable, unchangeable intention to punish sin and sinners. 
It is the hatred of God against sin. Some people try to say, well, you know, this is just anthropomorphism. Um, God, it, God hates sin, but there's really, there's, there's really no fuming, white-hot wrath. Well, my friends, that's, that's to turn God into some kind of philosophical supercomputer in the sky. God hates sin. He hates it in an immutable, unchangeable, eternal way that is consistent with His attributes. He has no changing passions. But one thing He does, and that is He hates sin. He hates it. He is angry and wrathful against it every single day and against everyone who commits it. By nature, God hates sin and judges sinners. And Paul here gives us a number of verses which spell out one of the chief sources of evidence that God hates sin. One of the greatest proof texts for hell in all the Bible is contained in this chapter. Because what Paul says is that God's wrath, the wrath of the God in heaven that you can't see, is revealed on earth. It's revealed from heaven in the providential series of events that we see among fallen human beings, among fallen men and nations, that we see evidence of God's wrath in the fact that when God is treated with disrespect, His blessings are ignored. When, when we are ungrateful as a human race against God, He gives us over to idolatry, to man-made religion. We'll, we'll get into this eventually, but the, the pattern here is ingratitude. They won't thank God. They won't worship Him as God. So He gives them over to their own human reason, their own human embellishments, religiously, philosophically, intellectually, practically, idolatry. And then having worshipped idols and exchanged the glory of God in heaven for earthly corruptible things, God gives them over from their ingratitude to their idolatry to immorality, to dishonor their bodies through sexual sin and unbridled lust. And then when they do that, He gives them over to perversion, to sexual sins that are are so far against nature that it's almost universal in the conscience of man that these things are unfitting, these things are unnatural, these things are vile and shameful. And when men fall into these things, even women, he says, even the women, even the women are falling into these things. He says then he, God gives them over to the next stage. So you've got ingratitude, idolatry, immorality, perversion, chaos. You see at the end of this chapter a list of sins, not just sexual immorality, but all kinds of unrighteousness. Every relationship, every human institution corrupted by these vices, envy, murder, malice, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispering, backbiting, hating God, violent against man, proud, boasters, disobedient to parents. It goes on and on. A society that is filled with people who are undiscerning and filled with people that are untrustworthy. That, that's a very explosive combination, which we see in our own day. People are easily duped, they're undiscerning, and there are many people who are untrustworthy they are going to take advantage of that. Not only that, but they're unloving, they're unmerciful. 
the loss of natural affection even within the family. Now, so much more could be said there. But it's hell on earth. That's the proof, that's the proof here that Paul gives for hell in eternity. The reason we know that God hates sin and that there is an eternal lake of fire, outer darkness, that there is a hell for all eternity, the way we know that, according to Paul, is hell on earth. Hell on earth testifies to hell in eternity. And if God, if we can see God, even if you're an atheist here today, you can't deny, you can't deny that that we see this in our culture. That as Paul describes the Gentile world turning against God's general revelation of His own attributes and His character in the created world, that we see that mirrored in our own society that has turned away from God's special revelation and His general revelation, but special revelation revealed in this book. And when you suppress the truth and unrighteousness, this is the path that you take. We're seeing it all around us. So if you come in here today and you don't believe in hell, here's the argument. Here's the argument. Hell is all around you. Hell is increasingly taking hold of this world and of our own culture and society. And the worse it gets, King James at one point says that these things are inconvenient. Verse 28, inconvenient. The more you see the inconvenience, the suffering, the sorrow, the unintended consequences that come with human sin and increasing human degradation, what you're seeing is a warning directed to you of the reality of hell, of a lost eternity where you will be given over into eternal hellfire, increasing misery, increasing hatred of God and corruption for all eternity. So this passage, front and center, gives us the undeniable reality of God's wrath against sin. Secondly, we see in this passage the universal need for God's righteousness by faith. The universal need for God's righteousness by faith. Paul is setting forth here the fact that chapter 3, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Here he's dealing with the Gentile nations. And he's saying that the Gentiles have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He's going to go into chapter 2 and deal, and in the first couple verses of chapter 3, and deal with the fact that the Jews, with all of their religion, even with the law of Moses in hand, Jesus came to His own and His own received Him not. And they were zealous for God, but not according to knowledge, because they sought to be righteous on their own and rejected God's righteousness. So the Jews and the Gentiles, they're all sinners. We're all sinners. And this is summarized in chapter 3, verse 9. He says, after presenting all of this, and again, we've looked at the first half dealing with the Gentiles, but he says, what then? Are we better than they? That's a question to ask yourself. Is it the case that you view yourself as better than certain other people? That when you come into this place and God is present and He's searching our hearts and minds, is it the case that there are sins in your life or mine that we sort of ignore because, well, I don't need to worry about that because at least I'm better than 
this person or that person. Beware of that. Paul had to be converted from that mindset. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. He goes on to say, none righteous. No, not one. None who does good. No, not one. Verse 19, all the world is held guilty under the law of God. And verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Well, then why do we have the law? First, the first phase, the first use of the law is to show us our sin. To show us our need for a Savior. To show us that we need not a righteousness of our own accomplishment and performance, but the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Chapter 3, verse 21. So Paul's showing us the universal need for God's righteousness by faith. And if the general, logical deduction that we've just made there doesn't suit your personality or the way that you tend to think, well, here's some inductive evidence. Look at the end of uh, chapter 1. Look at verse 29. If the deductive logical argument doesn't, isn't successful, listen to verse 29. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Now I want you to hear this list and I want you to examine yourself and I want you to be honest with yourself. Paul said all have sinned, but do any of these sins apply to you? If so, your righteousness is unacceptable to God. It's, it's filthy rags. Listen, are you filled with any of these things? Am I? Sexual immorality, even a lustful thought or look. Sexual immorality. Wickedness. That's any disobedience against God. Covetousness. Discontented with my earthly possessions or circumstances. Complaining about it. Discontentment. Covetousness. Maliciousness. Do I harm people intentionally? Have I ever done that? I'm angry, so I'm going to say something or do something to try to make somebody feel bad. Maliciousness. Full of envy. Viewing other people as having it so easy and I have it so bad and so I want bad things to happen to them to even the score. And I feel good when bad things happen to them and I feel bitterness when good things happen to them. Does that ever describe you? Murder. Now you say, well, that's one of those, well, our society, how many, how many millions of babies have we murdered? And I'm not trying to be insensitive, but um, I'm also trying to be real. Abortion is murder. Do you contribute to that? Do you support people that advance the slaughter of unborn babies? Do you, do you take positive steps to seek through your giving, through your activities, to try and stop those babies from being murdered? Are you complicit simply by way of negligence to protect those lives? Or have you killed a baby yourself? Again, this is why we need the righteousness of God and not trusting in our own righteousness. Strife, quarreling, fighting, disagreeableness, irritability, strife, argumentativeness, deceit. Do we exaggerate the truth? Do we lie? Do we deceive people to make ourselves look good? 
I mean, we could go through this list. Disobedience to parents, children. Have you ever disobeyed your father or your mother? See, if we've committed any one of these sins, then our righteousness is no better than the weakest link in that righteousness. Our righteousness is no better than the sins we commit because we are defiled. The Bible says when you break God's law, you break the whole thing. It's like a a vase, a precious vase. Okay, If you throw it down, it's going to shatter. When you break the Ten Commandments, you shatter the whole thing. Your righteousness is inadequate to say the least. So we need, we all need God's righteousness by faith. There's no one in the history of the world except for Christ that can read through this list or these other lists in the Scriptures and come out feeling righteous unless you're deceived, utterly deceived in your heart. Thirdly, our passage is important because it sets before us the Christian solution to ethnic tension. The Christian solution to ethnic tension. Now, I won't rehearse the whole story, but you know the background of the book of Romans. That the Roman emperor had kicked out all the Jews, including the Jewish Christians, from the city of Rome at a certain point. So that this church that had been formed largely with Jewish leadership and membership, all those Jewish Christians had to leave And so the church was then placed in the hands of Gentile members and officers for a period of time before the Jews returned. And now the Jews have returned, and no doubt there's some tension. You see it in some of the issues Paul deals with, for instance, in chapter 14, with uh, dealing with Jewish festivals and things like this. There was tension. That's why in this epistle, again and again, Paul is dealing with the Jews and the Gentiles and trying to show them that the Christian solution to ethnic tension is is showing us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that salvation is for everyone who believes. You see that commonality. The commonality in the bad news. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. It's not us versus them. It's not you versus me. It's not saying, well, who's better than this person? No, we've all sinned. This is distinctively the Christian solution to ethnic tension. Paul has already repudiated envy. So we don't play that game. All have sinned. We all deserve hell. And if we get less than hell, we ought not to complain. We ought to be humbled. And All who put their trust in Christ, Jew or Gentile, are saved. So, Paul is setting forth here the Christian solution by setting forth the fact that the Gentiles deserve the wrath of God upon them. And he's going to go on to say the Jews deserve it as well. So, there's no place for ethnic pride. There's no place for an ethnic victim complex. Paul deals out this bad news evenly. He says to the Gentiles, look, you've been living in unrepentant sin, idolatry, and so on for generations. Every miserable circumstance that you have ultimately is less than your sins deserve. But he also goes on in chapter 2 to deal with the moral responsibility of the Jews, the covenant people of God. 
He says, verse 24, because of your hypocrisy, the name of God is blasphemed by the Gentiles. In other words, one of the reasons that the Gentiles have descended into wickedness and perversion and chaos is because of the unfaithfulness of the covenant people of God. But that doesn't excuse the blasphemy. So there's mutual accountability. All have sinned. All have played a part. And so let's all come together and humble ourselves under Jesus Christ who alone is righteous and who alone gives us perfect righteousness in the sight of God. No excuses. No excuses. And yet we do have that responsibility. Fourthly, this passage is significant because it shows us the God-centered character of human history in the New Testament. This passage is not simply, though many commentators, that's all they want to say, it's not simply dealing with individual salvation. It's not merely telling us that every individual, whether Jew or Gentile, needs to repent individually or they will experience God's wrath upon them as an individual. It is saying that, but that's not all it's saying. Because Paul is dealing here with Gentile nations. He's dealing with a corporate entity. The nations of the Gentiles. And he shows us here that human history, even in the New Testament age, ought to be viewed as God-centered. Notice what's happening in the Gentile world, even up until Paul's own day, which is into the New Covenant period, is determined by God, but, but what is the, the, the criteria by which God determines what happens? What, what's the, uh, the philosophy of history, we could say, that we ought to have in viewing human history among the nations? Well, it's their dealings with God. Nations rise and fall based upon their dealings with Almighty God. He is the creator. He's the providential sustainer. I'm not denying that God has decreed it from all eternity, but He's decreed the ends and the means and the interaction that leads to these rises and falls in human history of nations and cultures is dependent upon their dealings with Him. And you can see here the logic of Paul's presentation, verse 18, God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now we tend to gravitate to those parts of this chapter that deal with certain forms of unrighteousness, lawlessness, perversion, immorality. But Paul says that's not actually the root cause of the problem. The unrighteousness of men is a fruit or a byproduct of the ungodliness of men. And the word ungodliness here deals with spiritual things. It deals with people's relationship to God. That whether or not they worship Him. Paul says whether or not they're thankful to Him. Whether or not they perceive and honor and adore His attributes as He reveals those things, either in general revelation, as with the Gentiles, or in special revelation, as with our own culture. God must be worshipped. He must be thanked. He must be recognized. 
and when he's not, and when his perfect law is replaced with the ideas and devices of men, when his worship is replaced with idolatry and human preferences, God gives over to unrighteousness. Not that the unrighteousness wasn't there. He says he gives them over to these lusts. The lusts were already there, but he pulls back the restraint and you see the unrighteousness as a fruit, as a judgment or a punishment for the ungodliness of men. Uh, Verse 28, as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness. Now we would say in the Old Testament, I think we would all agree in the Christian church today, that in the Old Testament, when we look at the history of Israel, they're God's covenant people, and God is interacting with them, and you read Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29, and there are rewards for seeking and believing and obeying the Lord, and there are chastisements and curses for disobedience, and Israel's rising and falling is based upon Israel's relationship to God in covenant. I think we would all agree with that. And I'm not seeking to say that God's dealings with the Gentiles is exactly the same. But the fact is, according to Paul, it has this in common with God's dealings with Israel that His dealings with them are based upon their dealings with Him. How they respond to the truth that they have through creation or through Scripture determines the rising and falling of these nations, even in the New Testament period. And if you read the Old Testament, this is obvious, right? I mean, God says to the nation of Israel, if you commit this, 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 and this sin against me, I'll cast you out of Canaan, just like I cast the Hittites and the Canaanites out. You see, there's, there's a commonality here. It's the same God dealing with nations in a similar way, not equating our nation, for instance, with God's covenant people. But it is a nation, and so was Israel, and there is a common point of uh, similarity there. Well, this has huge implications. If the rise and fall of a nation or a culture such as our own today is directly related to our dealings with God, then that's going to that's gonna speak to how we need to deal with the situation that we're in today. Because we've seen throughout our history as a nation, people that have the truth of God, that have some sense of His attributes through His revelation, certainly have the Scriptures, but they suppress it through ingratitude. They trust in their own idolatrous ideas and preferences. They're given over then to injustice and unrighteousness. They sink down to perversion. And now we've entered the chaos phase. I think it's fair to say. And we see these things ravaging our institutions and our society as a whole. What's the solution? Well, the solution is to get back to God. The solution on a macro scale is repentance and faith. The solution is the gospel. The solution is not to try to put out fires in terms of the chaos, the perversion, the immorality, and so on. The solution, the ultimate solution, is the gospel. Now, with that said, that's the macro solution. The micro solution is that 
in a way, we do need to be putting out fires. But we need to be doing everything we can as salt and light to make a difference in our own small, tiny spheres of influence. And let me illustrate this. Let's say that every year, God in judgment, we prayed for Japan this morning, let's say God in judgment on Japan sent a typhoon every year. Every single year. God sent a typhoon and we knew somehow, obviously we don't know, but let's say we knew that God sent it every year because of His judgment on their sin. Now, what would our responsibility be on a micro level? What would our responsibility be to the people in that land? Well, it would be to save as many lives as possible. If you lived in Japan as a Christian and you knew there was a typhoon coming, you'd be trying to get people out of there. Um, You'd be like Lot with his sons-in-law. Let's go. Let's get out of here. We would have a duty to do everything we can in the name of Jesus to mitigate the effect on those people in the name of Christ, to call them to repentance and to do everything we can to help them and protect them. And in our own culture, God's given us over to immorality, perversion. He's given us over to murdering babies. Take that as an example. Even though that's God's judgment on our society, we have a duty to make a difference as best we can in the name of Jesus. But our macro solution is not incremental moral reforms. On a grand scale, the only hope we have is to get that nation of Japan right with God so that the typhoons stop coming. It's not sustainable to have a typhoon every year. No matter what we try to do to protect people, eventually it's just not, go- it's, it's not going to be very effective in the big picture. We've got we to stop the typhoons by getting right with God. We need repentance. Uh, we need Nineveh. We need the book of Judges. We need to cry out to the Lord for help. So that's the macro perspective. But my point is that the rise and fall of our nation and our culture depends upon our relationship to God. Let's mitigate the pain and suffering in the name of Christ like the Christians in Rome did by adopting the little babies that were left by the curb, by the wicked Gentiles, by doing what we can to make a difference in the name of Christ and by adorning the gospel with our good works. But let's not forget that it is the gospel and it is corporate repentance and reformation that is the ultimate hope of our society. So this is a God-centered view of human history. Fifthly, this passage is important because it provides a chilling autopsy of man-centered religious cultural decline. It provides a chilling autopsy of man-centered religious cultural decline. It's a warning to us. It shows us the relationships of different sins, one, one group of sins to another group of sins. It gives us a sense of Satan's agenda and of God's judgment in the world. It helps us to understand that the, the, the chaos we see is the direct result in the providential judgment of God, the direct result of the perversion that we have tolerated which has destabilized our institutions, the most basic of which is marriage and the family. So you destabilize that, 
okay? Um, you know, it's like playing Jenga. There's certain pieces you don't want to mess with or the whole stack is going to come crumbling down. Marriage and the family, uh, gender, these kinds of things. Don't go for that piece. Have fun with that. It's going to come crumbling down. And that's what we're seeing. So permitting the perversion has led to the chaos. The immorality, quite obviously, even if we didn't have this passage, quite obviously the, the immorality leads to the perversion. When you allow sexual sin to run wild, it's not going to stop. It's going to continue. And God says He'll give over those who indulge sexual lust. Those who indulge sexual lust, whether it's walking down the street, whether it's on your computer or your phone, don't be surprised if you become enslaved to it to the point where you do things that you are literally ashamed of. You should be ashamed of what you're doing now, but I'm saying even in your hardness of heart, it just keeps going and it won't stop. Immorality leads to perversion. Idolatry leads to immorality. Our founding fathers, praise God for for many of the good character qualities and the wisdom and some of the believers among them, but my friends, our founding fathers in this nation made some very grave mistakes where they had an opportunity to have a more robust, biblically Christian society like our forefathers who, who first founded this civilization and they didn't do it. They, they replaced just Thomas Jefferson, cutting and pasting, taking out God's law, putting in human preferences and human ideas. And my friends, they thought they could maintain peace and harmony among men. They thought they could maintain this horizontal land of liberty. And we're seeing today uh, that you can't do it. They thought you could have some measure of purity, and they, they had many laws against sexual immorality. They, they were very strong on the family, very strong on these institutions, marriage and so on. But when they brought in human wisdom, when they added and subtracted from the worship of God, all of these trends in our nation's history, it leads to immorality. And where does the idolatry come from? What is the root cause and source of this whole problem? And this ought to hit home with us as professing Christians. Because we can beat up on, you know, these old men that put on a dress and want to, want to be referred to as a him and a her, these politicians and uh, bureaucrats and the, the young men that put on a women's bathing suit and want to compete as a woman. We can beat up on some of the insanity and the chaos or the perversion But here's the thing. How did this whole train of misery get started? It got started with people who to one extent or another had the truth and knew the truth and didn't give honor and praise to God. How convicting is that? That all of these things, these trends in our own culture, the trends in the Gentile world as they apostatized from the the faith of their forefather Noah and as they fell away from even the obvious truths revealed in creation, and we look at ourselves today and we say, well, okay, we have the truth. We understand the Ten Commandments. We're Reformed Christians. And and we can sit here and critique the world and just um, 
do a, our best Tucker Carlson routine and, and say how stupid and ridiculous all these ideas are and, and what's happening in our society. But my friends, it's actually laid at our doorstep. The Church of Jesus Christ, myself, yourself, we're ungrateful. We need to repent. We, we need to recognize that to whom much is given, much is required. And we need to study that initial phase, which we're going to do in weeks ahead. Study that initial phase of ingratitude that has led us. Are we worshiping God as He deserves to be worshipped and so on? So it's, it's, it cuts to the heart with this autopsy of religious cultural decline. In addition, uh, well, I, I have a number of remaining points. I'm going to cut to the chase here. This passage uh, gives us an encouraging reminder of Satan's failed strategy. You may look at this passage and you may be tracking with me as we're comparing Gentile apostasy and the judgment of God to what we're seeing in our own day, in our own culture. But you haven't followed the logic and the meaning of the text until you come to recognize that this cultural strategy of the devil viewed from that angle, this providential judgment of God viewed from God's angle is a failure. The the people who embrace and perpetuate this pattern of sin failed in the first century. Paul's describing the Roman Empire here. And what he's saying is, is that God is sovereign over it, giving it over to the self-destructive inherent tendency of its sin such that it ultimately failed. Now you just have to know something about human history and church history to know that the Christians in the Roman Empire who were persecuted, who were hiding and meeting in the catacombs, beleaguered, beaten down, starving, hungry, uh, deprived, they won. Right? The Roman Empire lost. Not only did they fall to, to the hordes and the, you know, all these armies, but they also were conquered by Christianity to the point where the emperor of Rome, though we would have expected and desired more of Constantine, he legalized Christianity. Christianity became the religion of the empire. Now, Satan corrupted that, but the fact is these Christians won. They defeated the anti-Christian, anti-God influences described in this text. This text describes the failed strategy of Satan. And we have to understand that. Jesus has already defeated this type of sin. Every sin mentioned here, Jesus has already defeated. This is not his first rodeo. He's already gone out on the white horse and conquered every aspect of this with his gospel. And the fact is that we can have confidence that sin is inherently self-destructive, that it is an inherently flawed and failed system, and that when God gives over our society to this last phase of chaos, we can actually have a strong degree of hope that as the kingdom of this world crumbles, that the kingdom of God will arise upon its ashes. So this is an encouraging reminder that there's nothing in here that you should be afraid of. Please don't listen 
to so much of the conservative media that, that makes this sound like, oh, it's just headed to this prison planet. And well, maybe it is, but that's all self-destructive. Christ will defeat it. Christ will bring the victory as he's done time and time again. Finally, this is an exhortation to God-centered, gospel-centered activism. And I already mentioned it, so I just want to give a brief exhortation. We need to identify these problems in our society. Paul did not reveal this to the Romans. He didn't write this so that they could sit on their hands. He wrote this so that just as he was eager to preach the gospel in the previous verses, that they would be eager to preach the gospel. Eager to make a difference. Eager to oppose. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard against him. And my friends, every believer is called by God to raise that standard, that banner of the truth of God, of the righteousness of Christ. Not in a moralistic way, not in a merely horizontal way, Not in a sort of patriotic nostalgia that says, oh, if we could only get back to George Washington. No, no. We need to turn to the Lord Himself, the old paths of biblical truth. We can't be obsessed with second table issues and perversions. We need to address those things, but we need to address them shifting the focus to worship and gratitude and honoring God. Those who honor God, He will honor And that's true of nations, if we would honor Him. Look at Nineveh. We don't have time to list all of their second table offenses against humanity. It's chilling to think about. But they fasted and prayed and humbled themselves. And God, reverently speaking, God responded. God protected them. God blessed them. Of course, then they, you know, more could be said about their history. But my friends, we need Nineveh. We need Nineveh, and we need to be active. We need to be laboring diligently to see this victory accomplished. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this passage which reveals the bad news of our own sin, both individually, in our families, in our church and the church at large, in the nation and culture and in the world. How easily we fall into ingratitude, not worshiping You, not prioritizing Your honor, Your kingdom, Your righteousness. And look at the horrid aftermath of our sin. We pray, O Lord, that You would shift our focus to the Lord Jesus Christ to the sword proceeding from His mouth, to His victorious, sovereign grace, that we would repent and that we would be as leaven in the lump of this nation. We've seen it throughout Your Scriptures and throughout history. We know You have the power to revive entire nations, that they might cry out to You and confess their sins and choose this day the Lord, to be their God. We ask it in His name, in Jesus' name. Amen.